Welcome back to the Content Lab, the podcast where we pull back the curtain on all things content marketing. If you're an inbound marketer, content manager, content writer, or brand journalist, you are in the right place. I'm John Becker, Revenue and Features Editor at Impact, and I'm joined by Liz Moorhead, Editorial Director. Howdy, Liz. Howdy, John. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's starting to actually feel like cold in the evenings. Um, as I tell my friends, I neither survive nor thrive in the summertime months. I like, like, here's the thing. I like going outside to beer gardens. I like, you know, the night times and the barbecues and being in the pool. But as you can see, nobody else can see this because they're not with us. But I have like a vampire chic glow that is my natural state. So this is just not the time of year for me. But now we're starting to see like, Dunkin' Donuts just re- released their pumpkin spice coffee. I don't care what people think or whether or not they think it's too early. Don't care. This is where we're at, and I'm really happy about it. Um, yeah. So you know, it, it's, it's funny, because I, I noticed today in our meeting that literally everyone except one colleague was wearing black or gray. And if that's not a sign of fall or a sign of summer coming to the end, I don't know what is. So... Pumpkin spice latte, people dressing in monotones, and the, the the little bit of cool air in the in the evenings is um, signs that that fall's approaching. To be fair, though, I'm not usually one you should judge by the color of my outfit because I live my world. Not, and this isn't a metaphor. I literally live in shades of gray, like literally. Like there's some maroons or maybe like I'll go crazy and throw in a forest green or a navy if I'm just feeling absolutely wild. But for the most part, I'm living in blacks and grays, maybe a rust color here and there. (laughs) No, thank you. Hard pass pastels. (laughs) We're not here to talk about fashion. No, we're not. But it's, 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 uh, it's always nice to connect. Nice to catch up. It feels like we haven't had Content Lab in a little while, so I'm really excited to dive into the topic for today, which is admittedly a little bit different, because today we're going to focus on video content. Yes. Here at Impact, we've been doing a lot of video content recently, like Mm -hmm. a, a lot, a lot. And often when we film videos, we ourselves and we advise our our clients that you should avoid a script in many types of videos things like bio videos they're going to feel more authentic and more human when they're done extemporaneously they feel just better more natural however the videos that we've been doing recently have been scripted and writing a script is a very unfamiliar type of writing for many content marketers and i will be the first to admit that I have never written a script for this type of, you know, this type of thing. So it's new to me. And I thought that would be a good way into asking you some questions because I recorded last week and you had written the script for the article. And I want to talk about how that all happens. But first to back up, can you talk about what this new video initiative at impact is? So the funny thing is, is that we're essentially just practicing what we're preaching. You know, we live in a world now when you say the word content, it used to have much more of a one-dimensional connotation or context when you were talking about maybe five years ago. When you said content, it was the written blog, the ebook. If you feel really crazy, it might be a podcast with show notes. But the reality is, is we live in a visual world. Primarily the type of content that is consumed is video. Video is known more than any other medium to establish trust faster with your audience. And the reason why trust is so important is that if people do not trust you, they will not give you their money in exchange for goods and services. So this is a really big thing for businesses. So one of the things that I was involved in over the past 13 weeks at Impact was as our editorial director, video content rolls up under what I do. And we said, we're going to make this work. You know, we have to go out of our way to upend our infrastructure, blend our content strategies together with video and written. And now I oversee both our written and our video content strategy in parallel. And that includes production and other stuff like that. So I want to, you said blend our content strategy. So could you talk about how video content and written content complement each other? Absolutely. First of all, 
whenever you think about a content strategy, ultimately at the end of the day, all you're doing is I have a list of questions that people are asking either in the sales process or in the service process, either when the service is being delivered or when they're vetting uh, potential solutions providers, right? So that's where you get your big five topics, cost, challenges, problems, comparisons, reviews, best of, and so on, how to's, all of that good stuff, right? How you answer that question is entirely up to you. And often in both cases, it makes sense to have both a piece of content and a video. And we've been doing a lot of that as well, but then you also have videos that complement content on a website page. So for example, there is, so we have the big five content topics that we just discussed, but then we also have something that we talk about in the They Ask You Answer universe called the Selling Seven. Now for people who are not familiar with the Selling Seven, literally have never heard of They Ask You Answer until this moment, let me just break it down really simply. The Selling Seven is essentially a fancy term for the seven types of sales and marketing videos that are proven to help you close more deals faster with more educated and qualified prospects. So for instance, if you go on a website page, one of the selling seven types of videos is a product and service page that walks through people, all of the different questions that they will likely have about a different product or service. Another selling seven type of video is a landing page video. So whether that's a contact us form, uh, you have an email newsletter, or you have some sort of ebook or pillar download or other offer. If you create a video that explains why someone needs the solution that you're providing within that landing page is what the actual solution is and what they can expect to happen once they give over their email address, you will increase qualified lead conversions. So that's really what we're talking about when we say those different types of videos and how they layer together. Hmm. So in, in those cases, and maybe this is a, a tough generalization to make, but in those cases, are you expecting the videos to extend whatever's being covered in a landing page, in a product page, in a, you know, about us page, whatever it is, or are you expecting it to, um, you know, to what extent are these independent entities and to what extent are they complementary entities? So whenever I create any sort of piece of content in my head, I'll say like, let's say for example, let's talk about the video you filmed last week. Right. And could you just remind people or not remind people, tell people what the video was that you shot last week. Sure. So the video is focusing on if a company hires a inbound marketing agency, why that company should have their sales department speak with that agency, not just their marketing department speak with that agency. So the reason why we came up with that article to be, or that topic to begin with is it actually came out of a sales brainstorm. So at Impact, we have a bit of a different approach than most inbound agencies. We are one of, you know, if you're familiar with HubSpot, we've been their partner of the year, numerous years in a row, their global partner. We are an inbound marketing agency, but we spend a lot of time with sales teams. Not just a little bit, a lot of it. And that is extremely atypical. So our sales team wanted a piece of content that addressed, well, why should my agency even be bothering with my sales team? They're busy selling. They're not really involved in marketing strategies. All these little, this litany of skepticisms and objections. So we started by creating an article. And it's also one of those things that would do really well as video, because you have to remember this. The video, yes, eventually I'd like to think of them as being complimentary, right? Like I want to plop that video at the top of the article so that way people can have the option to watch it or read it and there's a complimentary effect that happens there. But we also have to account for the fact that people may see that video independently of the article. So we're going to publish that on YouTube and the sales team will be able to, like let's say they have a prospect, right? They have a prospect that they know is never going to read an article. They're more of the video type. They're going to send them just the video. Or they may send them the article with the video at the top. We don't know. So to answer your question, it's a weird thing because you want to create an experience that is complimentary, but it's not done in such a heavy-handed, obvious way where it's like, there's an article below, you should read it. You know, like you have to create an experience where if somebody experiences the video independent of the written content that it, meant, it was meant to go with, it still makes sense. It can still stand alone. It still has enough meat. It's like you're making the movie version of a popular book. Yeah. 
like the Harry Potter movie has to stand on its own for people who haven't read Harry Potter, mm -hmm. but it also has to be exactly. entertaining for people who have. So let me, because you brought up that example, let me, let me dive into it because you wrote the script for this. So in that case, I know, I know in some cases, an article, a video, they might, they might be produced completely independently, but in this case, the article already existed and you took that and turned it into a script. And I'd love to get into that process a little bit. So how do you do that? Did you like read it and then start from scratch? Did you take a document and start cutting? Uh, you know, what was your process to take something that had already been published as an article and then move it into a script? So when I, the first thing I do, obviously, is I look at the original source material. Now, I will say in this case, and this actually should be the case at most companies, you should have the person who is owning your content marketing strategy. They should be overseeing development pretty much in some way of all content. And they should be working very closely with your in-house videographer, which is the desired state that we always recommend. Or if you happen to be working with an outsourced agency, they're working very closely determining what that strategy is, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to just lay that, I want to table set that first because it basically dictates everything that follows. So I was a part of the content brainstorm that made this particular article come to life. So when I was going out into the world and we were initially creating this as an article, I already had a pretty good idea of what was going into it. But just when I finally sat down and said, okay, now I need to take a script. There are a couple of things that come to my mind initially that I need to do. One, I want to keep it very close to the source material, but it, you never want it to just literally be a transcript or a recitation of what's already there. You're going to run into a couple of issues um, with that for a couple of reasons. One that I'm going to leave to the last part because this article presented the most challenging uh, blog to script transition but it's often gonna be written by somebody else. You may not necessarily have access to the person who is the original author. And it's going to be weird if you have someone standing up there pretending like it's their words, it's never gonna feel quite right. So there's always a level of adaptation that has to occur, where again, it creates that complementary experience. So the first thing I'm doing is taking a look at what question is somebody asking who's watching this video? So in this case, the article title was why your inbound marketing agency should work directly with your sales team. So I'm like, okay, so the answer is why should a marketing agency or inbound agency work with your work with my sales team? So then I asked myself, well, why are they asking that question? So then I set the table. You want to start with your introduction. You are right now vetting a lot of different potential inbound agency partners. And lucky for us, Impact happens to be one of those partners we're a little bit different than everybody else, right? We're asking to have a little bit more access to your sales team. Why? Why is that? Or if you want to do less of a bottom of the funnel approach and keep it more educational, then you start talking about, you know, most inbound agencies that you talk to are going to say that we really just need to be working with your marketing team. Here at Impact, we don't necessarily agree. We're not really going to talk about our services. We're going to explain holistically at a higher level why your inbound agency should want to work with your sales team, why it's a red flag if they shouldn't, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially, I take what is potentially a very long, meandering, storytelling-based introduction and condense it very quickly into what is the question being asked, why are they asking it, and identifying that right out of the gate. Yeah. After that, there is actually a specific script template, which we can put in the show notes that is a really good kind of it provides a really good framework of what every video should include, especially if it's more of the educational variety and not stuff that lives on website pages. But it breaks down essentially as follows. You're going to have an introduction that is going to, again, set the table of what question is being asked, why the person is asking those questions, maybe giving a little bit more detail, like you're asking this question and this and this and this. Well, great news. In this video, I'm going to tell you A, B, Mm -hmm. E and D. And that's essentially setting out your outline. And then you have each segment corresponding with each of those initial things. And then you have some sort of outro that says if you have questions more about what you've seen in this video, or if you're interested in talking more about your most pressing website design challenges, inbound agency challenges, whatever, you know, schedule a time to talk. Yeah. 
So that's essentially the basic formula. Now, what gets tricky, however, is that some articles are more already in that format, right? Like, and you and I know as content creators that often there's a very, like the introduction does exactly what I said in the video version. Right. It right. identifies the problem explicitly. It explains all the different questions that we're going to be answering and then says, let's go, let's go do that thing. And it's broken out very specifically. Yours was not like that. No. Yours was actually <laughs> adapted from what we call a Q&A style article where a content manager goes and sits down with a subject matter expert. And because the back and forth is so valuable, they opt to, instead of ghostwriting it under somebody's name, actually show the Q&A with a little bit more preamble and context in the introduction. So I actually had to sit there, and I don't mean this in a negative way, it was, it was the absolute right choice from the editorial perspective of what they needed to do, but generally conversations are more meandering. You know, John, you have a lot of experience with this. I would actually turn this to you a little bit. What, how do Q&A style narratives tend to differ from the more uniform structure that we see in an article? Because you have more experience in terms of putting these together than I do. Oh, I think you said it right there. It's, it's all about the meandering nature of conversation. It was, it's funny, I was just actually editing a transcript yesterday um, and turning it back to a colleague. I had interviewed her about uh, some sales initiatives in the second half of 2020 that she recommended. And I sent it back to her and, and um, after I had cleaned it up and, and condensed it. And I think people often don't realize how much those are actually condensed. And I sent it back to her and she says, oh my goodness, I spoke, I said 2000 words. I have to be more, you know, more concise next time. I have to be a little bit more pithy. And I was like, well, no, you said like 5,000 words. I cut 3000 words out of this to provide a, a, a really readable experience for our audience. <laughs> and I think that's an anecdote that sort of sums up what, uh, what Q&As often are, which is just like this. We, we talk about all sorts of things and might go in directions we might not anticipate. And that it's up to an editor to ruthlessly, I think, trim the fat so that the experience for the reader is more on point than the conversation is by nature. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the only follow-up I would have to that, and I promise this is leading back to your initial question about how I tie this all together, is what is the case, though, for displaying it like, so you do this all the time. You have to, as, the, as our revenue and features editor, look at a transcript and say, this is going to be ghostwritten into a more traditional format with an introduction, subheadings, probably in some sort of linear structure, versus the more meandering conversation. What makes you choose the latter with that more Q&A style where it's like, here, John has asked a question. Jen has now answered. How, how do you make that choice and what's the case for that? I think the Q&A style really is well suited. And granted, I'm, I'm presupposing the idea that there are heavy edits to, to make it what it needs to be. Um, but I think that style really fits if the questions that the interviewer are asking work as almost like FAQs for, for the audience. If, if it's like, yeah, I could really imagine my audience wanting to know this, 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 and this, according, you know, allowing for a few follow-ups as well. That feels really um, well-suited to certain topics. And I know that feels vague because it, it's, it's a case-by-case, case. whereas other topics are, are more, um, yeah, a more linear narrative makes more sense because it's, it's, it's almost like in, in, in like a, a college class, it's like lecture versus discussion. Uh -huh. Sometimes a lecture is really important because it takes a long time to get you to where the speaker is trying to get you to. It's, it's an extended argument. And sometimes the discussion is more fruitful because it allows for quick answers back and forth and a little bit more repartee. Absolutely. So when I was going through and I was trying to figure out, okay, I'm like, this is absolutely an article that needs to be turned into a video. But I had a, a, just an absolutely outstanding, but nonetheless meandering, more organic discussion in front of me between Jen Burrell, who's one of our content trainers, and Mark Amagon, who is, has a ton of experience in working with agencies because he actually used to work at HubSpot before he came to work with us on our sales team. And so it's this really great conversation about, you know, you, first we need to talk about breaking down marketing silos. 
And then finally, we'll probably get to why they should actually be, you know, working with your agency. And it's one of those things where, you know, we're not going to sit there and put a video of this entire interview. First of all, one didn't exist. Um, and as you rightfully said, a lot of these interviews make sense because somebody was there with a very sharp red pen and was slashing and burning and trimming all the fat out. So usually those videos just aren't going to exist. And not only that, the sales in a sales context, let's be realistic here. Somebody is not going to sit down and be like, I'm going to watch a 20 minute video where somebody expounds at great length about inbound marketing agencies versus your, with your sales team, unless it's a podcast episode or a video show that somebody's like really invested in. It's not happening. So I knew that we had to create a complimentary video experience that really just synthesized in a succinct way. These are the exact reasons why. So I went through, I basically said, okay, out of everything that Mark and Jen discussed, what are some of the themes that came out? And essentially what I was looking for is like X reasons. Like what are the specific things that need to come out of it? in order for us to answer this question thoroughly. I wasn't looking to create a video experience that was like, there is a very long interview below here and this is basically what you need to know from that. Like that's not what I was setting out to do. I was setting out to create a complimentary video experience that could stand on its own and answer the question succinctly. Now, there are other situations, however, where I'm not looking at having to reverse engineer a Q&A into a more synthesized, streamlined, like, a, B, C, D. Often I'm usually dealing with articles or pre-existing pieces of content where it's already pretty well structured. So for example, recently I did a script adaptation of an article we wrote of who is impact not a good fit for. And what's really fascinating is that since this was written by our VP of revenue, Melanie Collins, I believe you worked with her on this one, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's broken out, as you know, in a very holistic and very linear way. Like a lot of the heavy lifting is already done for me. So when I look through this article, and again, we can link this in the show notes, you can see what I'm looking at, but who is not a good fit, who, who is impact not a good fit for? Well, that's a great question. And by the end of this, you're not only going to understand the end of that, the answer to that question, but you're also going to understand who our core customer is the different characteristics that they possess, what we believe and what our core beliefs are, and how that informs whether or not you're the right fit for us, or we're the right fit for you rather. So a lot of that's already really laid out for me, and that's where I just have to go and sit down and say like, I don't, I cut out a lot of examples, I get very, like I never repeat anything, that is one of the key rules I would say, unless you're doing a summary right at the end, the quickest way to slash and burn a blog script down to an appropriate video length is to never repeat. Yeah. Keep those segments really tight, explain what the thing is, give a bit about why, and then also understand video is not the medium where you give not just the what and the how, or not the what and the why, but you don't need to give them the big old hows. You want to wet their palate. You want to answer the question thoroughly right in front of you, but you don't have time to like really kind of dilly dally. You need to move on. And of course the original article is always there for the person who wants to know more, who wants more in a more in depth. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's yeah. very rare that we're delivering a video that is just completely on its own adrift unmoored. Like for example, even if you're looking on YouTube, there's usually a description, there's always a description there. If it came from an article, we include the link to the article. If you want to learn more, here's the article. Right. If, there, we recently rolled out a video that was answering the question, what does impact do? Which I filmed, which was based on an article. And if you go to the article, that's where the video lives. Right. Now, granted, again, the sales team always has the opportunity to send that video separately if they really want to. And sometimes they do. But we do try to create that complimentary experience. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, however, though, is that sometimes you're building videos where content doesn't exist yet. And sometimes you just want the video, but that's still yeah. very rare. I always find like it needs to, it needs to have a home, like even a product or service video needs to live on a, on a page. It needs to have a website home. It needs to have a hosting home. It needs something. Hmm. So say you're a content manager and maybe you are 
in the position to build out a video strategy or to start taking some of your high performing content and create complimentary videos or to create videos from that content. Where do you start? Like what's, what's step one to, to kind of get going on that? Ask my sales team, what's the highest priority? Hmm. I could sit here and decide, like if I were the editorial director, I'd be like, well, you know, well, I am the editorial director. Not yet. <laughs> if I were like, if I were committing the usual sin that most marketing teams commit, it's that they sit around with a bunch of marketers in a room with a whiteboard and a marker and they make choices based on their needs driving traffic, driving leads. So you're going to probably end up with more top of the funnel content first. Um, bottom line, no matter what type of content you make, whether it's written or video has to make money in some form or fashion. So if you're not leading with a sales mindset first, I really do not know what you're doing. Like we also have a lot of top of the funnel content that's like really helpful and great. Like we teach people about SEO mistakes that you make on YouTube. What's the difference between HubSpot versus WordPress? Uh, what are the signs that your website is broken? What should your content strategy include in 2021? Actually, just what is a content strategy or how to write a blog? How do you sit down and write a blog? Like we do all of those things too, but you have to start in terms of prioritizing your efforts with what the sales team needs. That's really what's going to drive it for you. So we have, as you know, bi-weekly brainstorms with the sales team. I ask them not only what questions they're getting, we also ask them as a group to say like, well, what's the priority? It's almost like an upvoting system. Whatever yeah. has the highest upvotes gets, gets filtered to the top of the pile. And I, that's how I make my priorities. Now, the nice thing though, is that you still get to the lower priority items too. Usually if you haven't been doing video or content, that's really meant as sales enablement you're going to have a lot of higher priority stuff right off the bat, tons of bottom of the funnel. But as you continue to chip away at that, you're going to find that you have more breathing room. When you really start arming your sales team with the videos and the written content that they need, you find that you have not necessarily wiggle room, but you're going to have more breathing room to bring in more middle and top of the funnel stuff as well, because they already have much of the things that they need. But you always have to be checking in every two weeks and saying, what are the new questions you're getting? What are the highest priority items? And that should always be driving what you're doing first. That's my answer. That's a great answer. Thank you. Huh. So it feels like ideally any, any content strategy, as you said in the beginning, no, it no longer just means writing. Any content strategy should encompass video, a video strategy. And obviously we talk to our clients all the time about hiring both a content manager and a videographer. And it seems like if those two people are working in lockstep, you can produce really fantastic content that complements each other, that um, both can stand on their own and, and work together, but ultimately reach more and more people as some want to read or some are in a position or a place to read and some are in a position to watch and together you can reach everybody. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, one thing I think you could add here, just from your own observation, since I volunteered you, and by volunteered, I said voluntold. Um, I was like, hey, John, do you want to do this thing that's already on your calendar that I've already scheduled you for? We'll see you on Tuesday. <laughs> Alex and I will be here. Please wear an impact shirt. Uh, <laughs> like, I think you brought up a really good point there about how important it is to have your content person, your video person, like lockstep. But I would be curious under your observation, you watched us work together that day. Yeah. Do you mean and, you and Alex? And Alex or? Yeah. So Alex, for yeah. those who are listening, is our director of brand video production. So he's our equivalent of a videographer for Impact. Mm -hmm. And you saw us. We were yeah. Well, all day. You, you do much more filming than I do with Alex. And, and I will, having been in this, uh, in this position, I'll, I'll just two quick insights and then we can kind of, um, and then I think we can wrap up. But um, one was that after you wrote the script, and I thought this was a really uh, generous and, and, and smart act, you sent the script to me to um, just kind of like run through it, comb through it, see if there was anything um, that I wanted to change. And, and that is, I think, respectful of just the way I speak, the way I deliver. Were there any words or phrases or, or structures that I stumbled over? Um, and if we're talking about... <laughs> this piece of content was 
brainstormed by sales, interviewed by one colleague who was interviewing another colleague, and then it went to you, and then you were writing a script for me. So this is really quite a game of telephone by the time we get to the end of it. Yeah. So I think it's really, really worthwhile to build in that time at the end to have me, the person who's actually going to be standing there reading it in this case, say, hey, look this over. Are there any things that, that, that stick out to you or anything that you stumbled on or anything that you wanted to change? And, and I felt like you gave me really complete control at that point to make those small tweaks that, make, that made me feel more comfortable going into it. To be perfectly fair, I learned that the hard way because I 100%. So the first video I ever did was actually a script adapted from Jess Palmieri, who's one of our rock star HubSpot trainers. And I did a video about, you know, what are the benefits of working with a HubSpot partner agency? And I read it and I don't know what I was thinking because you know how much of a stickler I am and a hard ass about voice and tone and like really being conversational and sounding like yourself. And I don't know if I just like hit my head on something and didn't realize it, but I was like, you know what? This paragraph reads great. I don't think I need to change it. And the minute the words started coming out of my mouth, I was like, stop. And I was like, what's wrong? I'm like, I would, I would never say this. I'm like, and the reason why that's so important, and I'm so glad you brought up that last step, John, because I almost forgot about that. The last thing you need to do is put it in front of the person who is the talent and say, you need to change anything that is not something you would say. Because the minute you do that, I don't think people realize it, but the whole point of video establishing trust is you can't look like a wooden robot who is clearly reading somebody else's words. Right? It's fine if it is. It's fine if you're doing that. But like you have to go through and say, you need to make this, like, I was like, you need to make this a John Becker piece. Like I have gotten pretty good at writing like other people, but I use, I succumb to the Marcus Sheridan specifically thing. Like it's become my own tick that I have now too. Like you have to be able to make it your own because I, I was, I told Alex, I'm like, I can't believe I just wasted your time. I now need to sit here for 30 minutes look at the script again, and then we'll put it back on the prompter. Because I was like, I felt myself being wooden. I felt myself like I wasn't being in the moment or I don't know if it's acting or just being more authentic as I'm delivering the message, but I felt myself not being in the moment. And I'm like, that's got to translate somehow. There's like mm -hmm. somehow my discomfort either is going to overtly leak through or I'm never going to look as natural as I could be. Right. And that was a really tough lesson I learned the first time. And I mean, I will tell people like right now, I would say I provide a really good scripting experience for myself and others that we force in front of the camera. But that was after a lot of trial and error. And I would say that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I made right off the bat. Um, along with not really critically looking at a script, like another mistake I made we had to reshoot a, an article video about website strategy cost because I became too beholden to the source material and didn't realize that the video version had to be much more narrowly scoped. So the way it was originally written by our creative director, Erica Pierce, is she not only went into detail about how much a strategy cost, how much a strategy actually costs, she also went into, well, what are the different phases of a strategy? And I ended up, because of that, answering way too in depth like in a in a written article you can have that kind of depth and expansiveness you can essentially say what does a website strategy include at a high level and break it out into more detail and then see and this is why it costs so much the video we put it in front of will schultz who's one of our video traders and uh digital market digital sales and marketing coaches he has an extensive background in teaching um all of our clients about how to adopt they ask you answer and also how to do video the right way. And he said, this is wrong, this is broken, this is too bloated. He's like, I'm not sure what the focus of this video is supposed to be. And so again, that's why I don't just look at the title. The first thing I ask myself is how do I translate this title into a specific question if it's not already that way? And then I only pull things into the article now that explicitly answer that question. So I mentioned very briefly, you know, you can expect four stages in a typical strategy, but unlike the first version, it didn't go into each one very explicitly. Like you get sitemaps at this stage and blah, blah, blah. I, right. instead I, I really had to look at it as if I was creating a new piece of content. 
So you have to be really careful about what the source material is right in front of you. You have to be extremely analytical and not just say, oh, I can just take this and adapt it down. You have to say, what is the question and what, what pile of material that I have and you pull out only what you need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're really a storyteller and a storyteller has to choose which details matter and which details yeah. don't. You're right. Like you can have a, a, a table of, of numbers and costs and itemized, an itemized breakdown of, of all those factors in an article and it'll be really helpful for, for your audience. But if you're reading the same thing aloud, it's going to be a bunch of numbers to use your expression, word salad, that no one's gonna actually be able to digest. A hundred percent, because you may sit there and say like, I did a really great job of adapting this blog into a script, but that's not the litmus test for success. The litmus test for success is that somebody should be able to watch that video and not even know that a, that a blog was there to be adapted. Right. They will contextually because it's there, but like they, the litmus test for success of any video is somebody getting to the end, They're never. it should never be, oh, they did a great job of adapting this blog. It should be, they did a great job of succinctly answering this question. I think I want to learn more. There's a key difference there. And that's why this is like a tough question to answer. You have to be a, like a master or willing to master structure. But the, but the framework that we're going to link to in the show notes will really provide that structure. You don't have to guess at what it is. I've tested the structure and I didn't believe Will when he gave this to me. He's like, trust me, this script is going to work every time. And I'm like, mm, we'll see about that. And I like tried to break it like a thousand times. And I've written now like 20 different scripts across like bottom of the funnel, middle of the funnel, top of the funnel, super like educational, super scope, like narrowly scoped around like answering your specific, and it always works. It's always, a <laughs> damn it, Will. <laughs> it's just so smart. I know. And actually, if you guys want to go back into the archives, we, he, Will has been on our show before when we did, what was it, Coronavirus Content Strategy Showdown with him and Brian Casey. Yeah. That was fun. From the vaults. From the vaults. Man, <laughs> I would say those are the biggest pitfalls and challenges that you need to watch out for. When you're first starting out, I think, with any type of content project, I think people have a tendency to be very insular. And I've noticed this even with myself. Like, oh, I did a good job. I got the blog published. It's like, did you answer the question? Oh, I did a great job of adapting the script. That's really good since I'm new at this. It's like, but did you answer the question? Like, you really need to make sure that your goal for success with any script you write, anything you publish, and this is video, written, whatever. Did you solve the problem for the viewer? Did you solve the problem for a reader on their terms? They don't care whether or not this is your first script or your first rodeo. They don't care how close you got to the source material or whether or not your boss said you did a good job. If you didn't solve their problem on their terms, it doesn't matter. So Liz, do you have something to teach us? Yes, as if we haven't heard me ramble enough today. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about my, and the, this is today's learning corner, by the way. So in today's learning corner, I have a bit of a broader lesson I want to teach people. So this is rooted in some work I've been doing, I would say, what, over the past one to two years about really deconstructing what my process is to write an article that lands in front of the right person at the right time with the right answer and they know it's for them. Like that's always the little piece I think people forget. In content marketing, we always talk about it's the right content in front of the right person at the right time. And it's like, great, but what if you do that and they don't see it? Like how do you create those content magic moments where you put the content and they look at it and instinctively go, oh, that's for me. Like they have to know to pick up the thing to look at it, to like not just mix metaphors, but just completely obliterate them. That's where we're at right now. So I came up with a, a content planning exercise where essentially I take people through a guided process of who is asking you the question, what exactly is it that they wanna know, why are you the number one teacher or person they should trust to answer this question, and finally, how are you gonna help them get the answer to that question, solve their problem, make the pain go away, whatever that thing is. 
Those who have listened to this show before also know, however, that I have a big stinky beef with things called buyer personas, which for a long time were the cornerstone, the foundational element of any inbound marketing strategy you ever created. I know this because I was once like many of you who may still be clinging desperately to them like they are a life raft, that these weird little fictional profiles with psychographic and demographic data like, he's a VP of sales who likes golf and reads motor trends. Like, uh, like he trusts his friends and like goes to LinkedIn conferences. Like, you know, the, you know, all these little things and you know what we do with them. We, we spend a bunch of time researching them and then we shove them into a drawer. We're like business, Bob, we love business, Bob. Now we're going to put that PDF in a drawer and never look at it ever again. I don't like buyer personas because they create this false sense of you can't get started until you do all of this extensive research, which is just fundamentally untrue. I hold brainstorms with sales teams and service teams because they talk to your ideal customers all the time, already know who they are, already know how they talk, already know the questions they're answering, blah, blah, blah. So why is the first question I ask, who are you talking to? My lesson learned today, which I'm gonna share with an example, is that buyer personas, by and large, <laughs> Um, are fundamentally useless. But sitting down and having a very nuanced and thoughtful discussion before you put virtual pen to paper about who is asking the question before you rush to try to fix it and answer it is absolutely critical. So the questions I usually take people through this exercise are as follows. So imagine someone is running up to you on the street. Like for example, if we were to use the why does an inbound agency need to work with my sales team? Or if we're using the example you mentioned earlier, because you were working on the interview with Jen Munoz, one of our digital sales and marketing coaches, what are the things that my sales team needs to be focused on going into the end of the year? The first question I'm going to ask is, okay, imagine that person is running up to you on a street. Who is it? Tell me who they are. Well, in the case of Jen Munoz, it was a VP of sales or a sales leader, someone in that capacity, someone who's really focused on that. Okay, did they walk up to you or did they run up to you or is there any sense of urgency? Like, are they calm or are they urgent? Okay, they're urgent. All right, why? Are they stressed? Are they feeling negatively, positively? What's going on there? Why are they running up to you in this moment to ask you this question? And then I start peeling back the layers and I have them intentionally speak to me in the first person. Like, don't tell me what they're doing. Be that person. You just ran up to me on the street. I'm feeling anxious. Why? Well, everything's different this year. You know, we have a sales strategy. I'm not sure it works. This is more than ever a measure twice, cut once situation. What am I, what am I supposed to do? Not only that, um, you know, sales teams, as you know, are super close and my team is no exception. Am I going to have to start worrying about cutting people off? Like, am I going to have to reduce headcount? How do I avoid doing that prematurely? Oh my God, I'm starting to panic and stress. Like getting into all of these kind of emotions, all of the feelings that are wrapped up. Because whenever someone is like asking you a question, this is the core, right? Of they ask, you answer. What they're really doing is they have hit a breaking point or a wall where there is a question in front of them where they cannot answer without intervention, a problem they cannot solve without intervention, which automatically creates a little bit of friction, a little bit of need, a little bit of like someone please help. So the first question alone solves everything that people waste months doing. What is in your buyer persona? Okay, it's a VP of sales. He likes golf. Congratulations. Wonderful. That's the first question. That's table stakes. When you go through the process of really identifying who is the person, why they're feeling that way about the question, are they feeling pressure from above, laterally, below, some terrible combination of all three? Maybe they're excited because it's a goal, but hold on. Is it their goal or did somebody come along and say, hey, this is a nice goal. It's yours now. Like, there are all of these little different pieces that will help you understand okay, what emotional tone do I need to strike? Do I need to show empathy? Um, if somebody's really stressed out, I was working with, again, Will Schultz, who I was just referencing earlier. We went through this whole thing where he was talking to, in his article, um, a business leader who understands they ask you answer, but they see it as a set of tactics and don't understand the cultural shift that it requires. And so you have someone who's like, okay, I need you to prove me wrong. Like I'm willing to listen, but I'm coming from a position of skepticism, which means this is not a place for cheeky behavior. This is a, this is not a place where you want to weave in a lot of personality from the like, let's be funny perspective. That's great for educational stuff when you're trying to keep people engaged, but here you need to cut to the point. 
The only type of humor that may work here is kind of self-referential gallows humor or maybe a little bit of sarcasm. And even then you kind of got to tighten that in and keep it really dialed in. It really helps you dial in on the tone and the emotional beats that you need to hit. So my learning quarter for this week is that the next time that you sit down and say, my piece of content is designed to answer this specific question. Before you say, what is the answer I should give them? Ask yourself, who is the person asking you that question and why are they coming to you in this moment? And then make damn sure you're talking to the right person. Hmm. I've seen a lot of times where people are like, well, it's this person who's asking. Like originally Will said, oh, well, I'm really looking to speak to the marketing director who's trying to convince their boss. And I said, well, then that's a different question. The question is, well, how do I convince my boss? And he's like, well, that's not the question I'm answering. The question is, isn't they ask you answer just a set of tactics? Why isn't it a cultural shift? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like, great. I don't want to talk to your marketing director. I want to talk to the business leader. Get that director out of the room. <laughs> we were role playing actually as the marketing director. And when I finally got to the bottom of them, I'm like, this is not the right person. I need you to go get your boss. And then we role played as the boss. And that's how <laughs> we got to it. So it's, you got to know who it is and you got to make damn sure you got the right who in the room. That's my learning Look, I love that it's not just about who, it's also about like their emotional state and yeah. um, kind of where they're at. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, I like to consider who holistically. Whenever somebody shows up like at work, uh, when they show up to a meeting, whenever they show up to anything, they're bringing the sum of their experiences with them that culminates in this moment of asking a question. So I just, I want people to challenge themselves to consider that person holistically just for five minutes. It sounds like it adds a lot of strategy time to your work in terms of building it in, but you'll be surprised how much it'll change the scope of your conversation. I did one with Jen Burrell on a seemingly very simple topic, which is what is a content strategy? And at the end of it, because I was not only coaching her on that piece of content, she's learning how to coach this on this herself and use the content compass with her clients. I said, I'm very curious how you felt about this process and whether or not it is going to make you make different choices than you thought. And she said, yes, because her who ended up being this like really stressed out person that she could hundred percent relate to because she had been them. She's literally been going along, doing her job, baby stepping, publishing content. And all of a sudden somebody says, I need a content strategy. And this person is sitting there going, but isn't the editorial count? Isn't, that's this thing. And they're like, no, no, no. I want to see your strategy. So you have this stressed out, anxious person who's like, my job is in question. I have to deliver this document. I don't even know what it looks like. I don't even know how it's different from what I have in front of me. I don't know how to make the people above me buy into this. Like all of this, like this little bubble of anxiety wrapped up in one question. What is a content strategy? And she's like, I would have never approached it that way. And she's like, I'm throwing everything out and I'm doing it this way now. And it's completely changed her outlook. Yeah, sorry. I know that was a very long learning corner. So I'm going to turn it over to my more succinct um, co-host, John, friend of mine. I already took a sneak peek, so I know. So I'm so excited. But what are you reading this week? Because it's just so great. <laughs> so <clears throat> my reading to share this week comes from uh, one of the most recent issues of The New Yorker. And it is one of their humor sections. I feel like The New Yorker has been doing great writing about, uh, about COVID and the sort of post-COVID world. But this is a humorous piece called Small Talk in 1348, which puts us back in, you know, one of those really serious plagues from the Middle Ages, bubonic, etc. And takes a lot of what we would be saying now to each other in 2020 and puts it in kind of that sort of older setting. And, and it's just it's just really funny, uh, you know, lines like rouse me when rouse me from my slumber when it's the 1350s. Uh, and, and just we're in the middle of the uh, I am in disbelief that of all the kings to rule over us during the Black Death, we are cursed with Edward the Third. And then someone else says, I would take Edward the Second right now. Oh, um, my God. And it's uh, it's hilarious. Very funny. Very topical. Very, um, very tongue in cheek. So we will link to that and uh, give it a read and brighten your day. I have a couple of thoughts on this. Number one, my favorite section was. Did you hear Edward III said that as leeches may cure the plague when applied to the skin, healers should also put them inside the body? 
<laughs> you must have a secret investment in leech gathering. That is the only explanation. <laughs> I think what I love about the New Yorker, and you really hit the nail on the head, as you know, I think I always feel bad for other people in our in our Slack channel because you and I are always, often trading like, did you see that thing in the New Yorker? Did you see the thing in McSweeney's? And it's all this like, oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> chortle, chortle. But like one of the reasons I like it so much is that I always cite hum humor, humor. Uh, I always cite humor and satire as like masterclasses in content marketing because it's it's such precise word choice in order to convey something and make people feel something. Like I, I just can't recommend not only this specific one enough, but um, just in general, reading more humor to, to humor, to make sure that you understand like you can make people feel things, you can make people think things with very precise structure and word choice. This was such a good one. And uh, if there's any ever a time that we need more humor in our lives. I know. It is now. Very good. Although, is anyone truly well during a play? <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Well, um, this has been a delightful episode yet again. Yeah, thank you for sharing so many amazing insights into a process that I think is unfamiliar for a lot of content managers. And I'm going to throw in a little bit of a special note here, because if you're listening to this episode, you're probably going, good God, why is this episode preceded by 10 episodes that also just came out today? Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of an editor's note. John and I have been recording back and forth now for many weeks throughout this coronavirus pandemic. And I have always struggled to figure out, well, when is the right time to drop this episode? Because we had some episodes that predated it. And then we were promoting events that eventually got canceled. And everything always felt like a week later, there was something wrong with the episode that neither made it obsolete or out of date. But we also know that everything that we've talked about in those episodes is super valuable. So all I will ask for you to do is this. Understand that the episodes that are presented to you now are in a little bit of a weird order understand that some of the things that we promote, like for example, digital sales and marketing world did not happen in April. Wow. Isn't that hilarious? Didn't happen. Like things like that. I just want you all to listen with an open mind and understand that I think everybody's trying to adapt their content strategies right now. And so we thought, wouldn't it just be fun to give you a big marathon to plow through over the weekend and into next week. And then we're just going to start fresh when we record our next episode. So with that, um, yeah, that's all I got for this week, John. Do you have anything else? That's it. Awesome. Enjoy the 18,000 episodes of Content Lab, you little monsters. <laughs> You're going to learn so much. And I am actually going to say this and mean it until next week. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.